Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and on this week's show I'm going to be talking a little bit about proof. What does proof mean? What does proof mean in science? Well, not a great deal as it turns out. Really? Well, not really. We don't use the word proof much in science. I mean, we use evidence, don't we? Yeah, exactly. People people who are who are non-scientific use proof a lot, like you know, scientifically proven to reduce wrinkles. You see that a lot. And I'm I'm gonna talk about why you shouldn't say that and why it's not actually how Mm. things work Mm. in science. Mm. Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week I have a story about um, probably a bit of a maligned bird. I like the maligned birds, the maligned Australian birds. The brush turkey or the scrub turkey. Who maligns the scrub turkey? I think a lot of people. I don't... I think a lot of people with with quite nice backyards with a lot of mulch, yep. Yep. Um, especially around the Queensland and New South Wales area, scrub turkey gets in the backyard and just starts mounding that mulch, yep. Yep. and um, and they get maligned for it. Anyway, new um, research has just come out showing that a relative of the scrub turkey or the brush turkey or the dirt hen. Or the <laughs> no, I just made that up. It's not the dirt hen. <laughs> um. Fossilised remains of um, five relatives, actually, of the scrub turkey um, have been found, and one of them is, uh, is the size of a kangaroo. So we're, we're going to be talking about um, what that means. Chris, how about you? Well, you know, um, I'm good. Thank you, Claire. Um, well, I have a story that is also a bit like Stu's, just kind of looking at conceptual sort of things about science, but now bring it down to the practical. Because, you know, we talked, I think, recently about how science yet changes a lot in science and this sort of thing. I mean, often though, science doesn't completely turn things around. Like, you know, Einstein built on Newton. He didn't completely you know, overturn say that Newton it. Was, yeah, yeah, wrong entirely. Um, but sometimes it does turn around completely. And one good example of that is peanut allergies. Um, so where the advice essentially has gone a full circle from what people used to recommend um, so, yeah, I'm going to look at what the latest evidence show, says and why the evidence changed completely. So, we've Probably all heard of Senator Malcolm Roberts in the Australian Federal Parliament. Um, So he's uh, a Queenslander who's affiliated with the One Nation Party. Well, he's made a big deal since taking office of challenging various government bodies to produce evidence for him. Um, And, you know, that is what some government bodies are set up to do, really, is to uh, produce evidence of certain aspects of the world so that we can understand them better and make decisions and make policy about things that happen in the world. But he has had a go uh, specifically at the CSIRO, amongst others. I mean, he's had a go at the Bureau of Meteorology, who are probably the most um, uh, non-challenging, apartisan sort of groups that exist in, you know, basically they measure the weather and tell us what the weather's going to be like, hopefully, in the future. But... Uh, Senator Roberts recently tabled a report called On Climate, CSIRO Lacks Empirical Proof. And he subtitled it, We Have a Choice, 
the tyranny of controlling opinions versus the freedom of objective scientific evidence. Wow. So, look, just this title alone, he's made some huge, huge mistakes, which draw into question his ability to question the science or the policies around science of not only climate change, but science in general. So, first of all, his use of the word proof. What does proof mean? Well, in alcohol, um, the proof is like how much percentage, but it's sort of like it's 100 proof. It's like 50%, I think, alcohol. Yeah, volume. 80 proof is uh, yeah. 40%, 40% alcohol. So, yeah, there is, there is that use of the word proof. In mathematics... Oh, yes. You a, can prove things in mathematics logically. That, yeah. is, that is true. A proof is an argument that supports a mathematical statement. Uh, it's a way of demonstrating how something works in maths by inductive reasoning. Yes. Uh, in logic, which is closely related to maths... A proof is an argument that demonstrates inductive reasoning to demonstrate a logical rule. Both of these, are, they use inductive reasoning to arrive at a conclusion that is self-evident. So it's based on things which you can just look at and go, well, that's true. Uh, that's what proof is in logic and in mathematics. And in common use, people use it to mean the same as evidence. So, you know, you would say in a court case, say that you wanted proof that somebody did something or mm. that somebody was in a certain location. Uh, but even in court, they generally use the word evidence rather than proof because it's such a problematic word. What about the phrase proof beyond reasonable doubt? Well, see, that, that is an example where in court that they would use the word prove uh, and what they mean there is demonstrate. Yeah. They show beyond reasonable doubt that something happened. In science, it doesn't mean any of those things. In science, to prove something means something else entirely. If you're proving something in science, it's going to be a hypothesis. And it's an old-fashioned version of the word prove, which is based on the Latin word provare, which means to test. So you're proving it by testing it. We still actually use this word in English. So you have things like proving grounds for a car is where you test a new car model, for example. Proofreading of a document. Oh, yes. Sure. You're testing how, how well the document's... Okay. Yeah, by, by reading yeah. through it and even proving loaves of bread so if you're making bread oh, you prove a loaf yeah. of bread by seeing if the you're testing if the yeast worked or not if the bread rises the yeast works you can bake the bread if it, is that is that what it means in that that's where it comes respect. from yeah ah. it's from the original huh. from the original uh, latin surprise surprised so in science proof is testing you prove something you're testing it. You're testing a hypothesis. But mostly we just say test or experiment in a lot of cases. It's the evidence produced by the test that either supports or does not support the hypothesis. So the hypothesis on the effect of carbon dioxide levels on the climate was first proposed quite some time ago. Any guesses how long ago? It was like 1870s or thereabouts, wasn't it? Well, the, the first the first proposal or the first hypothesis that it was uh, that carbon dioxide levels uh, would affect the climate carbon dioxide levels from burning oh, fossil fuels uh, mm. 50s specifically 1896 oh 1896 okay. yeah oh, so the you know the industrial revolution was in full swing by then yeah that was Svante Arrhenius or something like that, that wasn't was it? Svante yes. Arrhenius who's a Swedish researcher so I should have pushed my buzzer before I said that <laughs> you should have you would have got the you would have got the pick of the board. Yeah. Since 1896, that's been extensively tested mm. by numerous studies all around the world, and they've all concluded that yes, increasing the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will cause temperatures to rise. Yeah. So there's no question that there's evidence. There's mountains of evidence that this is actually 
uh, a tested hypothesis which has been proven to be upheld pretty much every time anyone's ever bothered to test it. So the evidence is there, and the proof is not something that a scientist would ask for. That's not what scientists ask for. They ask for evidence that supports a hypothesis. They don't ask for proof, because it doesn't really mean anything in science. Now, the second mistake he makes in the title of his report is in the suggestion that the opinions of scientists is somehow controlling what he calls objective scientific evidence. So I'll just recall that he said, we have a choice, the tyranny of controlling opinions versus the freedom of objective scientific evidence. What he's suggesting is that there's a bunch of scientists who've all got together and decided, no, 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 we're going to shut down all of this objective scientific evidence that someone else is producing. Aren't scientists, uh, aren't scientists delivering the um, freedom of objective objective facts? Well, exactly, exactly. <laughs> what he's done is he's taken the idea of scientific consensus and assumed that that means the opinions of scientists. Mm. But that's not what it means. Scientific consensus is not a group of scientists agreeing with each other and seeking to stamp out all opposition to their, to their established viewpoint. Scientific consensus is when a large number of published, peer-reviewed research papers come to the same conclusion. That's what consensus is. And this is what's happened with climate science over decades and decades of work all over the world by all these different scientists. The fact that the scientists' opinions then reflect the evidence of the work that's been published all around the world is a byproduct of the scientific consensus. It's not what makes the scientific consensus. Yeah, this is why you can't really go far too far down this path before going into some sort of massive conspiracy theory because you know they have the scientists would have to all be in on it to get the deliberately faking for this evidence to be wrong. Exactly, exactly. And, I mean, the thing is, one of the reasons science works so well is that scientists are really, really fast to point out each other's mistakes. Mm. They love they it. They love it. There's, there's <laughs> nothing they love better than poking holes in someone else's work. You don't win the Nobel Prize for agreeing with everyone who came before you. That, that is absolutely right. Yeah. And this is why there's two big mistakes about the way science works on the cover of um, Robert's report that he submitted. And I think that's enough to question the contents. And, you know, usually it's considered bad form to judge a book by its cover. But I think in this case, you could probably spend your time better elsewhere. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. had an interaction with a brush turkey or as some people call them bush turkeys or maybe a scrub turkey have you i i what do you mean by define interaction i don't know being uh mono mono tete tete <laughs> i've never had a fight with one if that's what you're talking about <laughs> no just um just an interaction where you got in its personal space or it got in your personal space i mean i'm thinking specifically you know every time i go camping on the east coast um a brush turkey gets into my bin and takes off with my bin i mean that's like that's why just why what, have you got a bin when you're camping? Because you have to put your scraps somewhere. I guess. And you, then you tie a little bag to. Anyway, um, Chris, I feel like you have had. I haven't had like I haven't had a um, an encounter like that with a bin buzzard, as some people might call them, <laughs> or ibis. a garbage grouse, or I'm making up names for the ibis is the bin chicken. Yeah, the bin yes, chicken. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's for sure. Um, well, okay. So imagine if the brush turkey was as big as a kangaroo. Surely we would be all feeling a little bit more apprehensive about shooing it away from our bins. That would make off with your wheelie bin. It would make off with your wheelie bin. Exactly. Maybe, maybe even a skip. Yeah. <laughs> push push a skip down the street. Uh, 
Kegaroo, skip. I see, what you, I see what you did there. Oh, dear. Well, this week, Flinders University have published findings suggesting there were a lot more brush turkeys getting around um, a couple of million years ago than there are right now. Mm. Um, in fact, five distinct species of brush turkey, or megapode, as they're called, um, in Australia. And one of these was four times the size of the brush turkey that we all know and love today. So megapode is the name of the family of the bird. Um, it just means mega, which is big, mm-hmm. and pode, which is foot. So right. it's just uh, Bigfoot. Right. Yeah. It's or the Bigfoot of Sasquatch. the... Sasquatch. Oh, Sasquatch. <laughs> Bigfoot the, of the avian world. The, yeah. the Sasquatch of birds. Yeah. 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 Um, and these big feet that megapodes have are great for building giant mounds where they lay and incubate their eggs. Um, but I'll get back to that a little bit later. Oh, cool. Anyway, so uh, researchers looked at megapode fossils from South Australia and also WA, um, some that were found in the Nullarbor, actually, the Nullarbor Plains back in 2011, and other ones that were found in the 90s but were never analysed in in WA. Um, The fossils date back to about 3 million years for the oldest ones to around 40,000 years for the most recent fossils. Um, And it's the first time that they've all been analysed together with also the... um, uh, the living members of the megapode family in Australia. So they were able to create a whole megapode family tree, an Australian wow. megapode family tree, um, you know, getting the whole fam back together, as yeah. it were. Um, anyway, and the analysis showed that in Australia, we once had these five species of brush turkey, br- of brush turkey all bigger than the ones we have today. Mm. Um yeah, and interestingly, the ones that were found, the fossils that were found on the Nullarbor Plain. Now, when I think of the Nullarbor Plain, you think of uh, fairly treeless, maybe. Hence um, the name. Hence the hence the plain name. Mm. Maybe the Nullarbor. Yeah. The <laughs> no, Nullarbor oh, Nullar. means no trees. Nullarbor. Yeah. No. Yeah. Ah, exactly. Um, and maybe, <laughs> maybe a desert. You can edit that out if you want. No, nah, you're going to leave keep it Keeping that in. You're keeping that in. <laughs> um, but it was quite different. It, it was quite different about a million years ago. It wasn't the Nullarbor a million years ago. It was... Um, it wasn't the Nullarbor a million years ago. It was actually had quite a lot of uh, woody trees and mm. grasses. Um, and another interesting thing to note here is the big, the big um, brush turkeys... Were not flightless like emus or anything. They they were big, but they could actually fly. Wow! Yeah, That's, yeah. So that that so the kangaroo-sized birds that could fly. Yeah, yeah. Wow! Qantas would be happy with that. <laughs> the flying turkeys, we'll call them from now on. It would have been a, a sight to see, indeed. Yeah. Um. So it's amazing to think that these. Giant brush turkeys existed, but I also want to talk about their living relatives because um, they have their own brand of awesomeness. Um, and to be honest, I think they are a little bit underappreciated in Australia, these brush turkeys. Uh, for example, like I said, every time I go camping, I there's a brush turkey um, that is just down the road from me, maybe camping at the next mm-hmm. camp spot, this, this brush turkey. Um spends it the the whole two weeks that I'm camping there it is there day and night just like 
just raking all this dead leaf litter together mm. into this giant mound. Um, the only time it stops is to put its nose into the mound and then it just keeps raking again. So all day, all night, and it just does that the whole time. Um, anyway, it turns out this obsessive mound building behaviour is actually quite normal for the brush turkey um, or at least the male brush turkey. Uh, it's the male that builds these large mounds, which are normally four meters in diameter. So that's that's quite um that's quite big. It's quite mm. big for a for a for a mound, um, and it's about one to one and a half meters tall. For a small bird, I mean not a small bird, like a bird the size of yeah, a yeah. For a bird, you know, dog. that might be the size of a small dog, only about maybe a couple of kilos. Yeah. Um, it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty substantial mound. Uh, anyway, this mound made by the males is for the female's eggs. And um, once it, once the female lays the eggs in there, the male goes about um, keeping the temperature just right, the ambient temperature just right. So all the female does is go in, lay her eggs, and then she's out of there. And in fact, say you've got, you know, one, one mound, it can actually hold different females' eggs oh. um, so long as they are the eggs of the male. So as long as the as long as the male is the father, yeah, it will, it will look after all the eggs. It will look after all mm. the eggs from the different female, or from the different females, and then they'll all they'll all hatch, um, and both mum and dad are gone by the time it hatches. So it's the presumably the decomposing plant matter that keeps the the eggs warm. Is That's that the right. Deal? Yep, yep. So the in the so most bird eggs are incubated by. Um, the warmth of a bird's body. Yep. But these eggs are incubated by the heat given off by the rotting vegetation. So um, the rotting vegetation can vary quite a lot. So that's why the male is so fastidious in mm. keeping the temperature constant. Um, you need and, to keep and also, it. And also the reason that they sort of scratch around on it is because that aerates the, exactly. aerates the, the yeah. vegetation matter. So it composts aerobically rather than anaerobically. Oh, oh, that's a really good point. I didn't yeah. even think about that. Yeah. yeah. Composting birds of Australia. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Um, and it so it might dig a hole in the mound that might um, – so that might cool it down and then it might add more – um, leaf litter to the mound, so that might warm it mm-hmm. up. Um, and then it has like an amazing thermometer on its nose. So when it's putting its nose into the mound, it's actually checking the temperature of its eggs, um, which is pretty amazing. Yep. The other thing I wanted to briefly note here is um, something a friend of mine said to me the other day, um, that brush turkeys seem to be doing pretty well for themselves in terms of distribution and abundance. And I, um, they're popping up in a lot of areas that people don't really remember seeing them in, like south of Sydney, for example. Oh, really? Yeah. Now, there isn't a lot of research I could find um, that sort of showed their distribution patterns or why this was happening or what was going on. And when you think about it, you know, a flightless, I mean, a semi-flightless sort of turkey-like bird that doesn't um, take care of its young after they hatch, um, it, could, it should be susceptible to all sorts of predators and prey from cats and foxes and stuff like that. Small but dogs or slightly larger dogs. Slightly small or slightly larger dogs. <laughs> but they're but I mean at least, you know, qualitatively their population seems to be doing quite well and they seem to be spreading in their distribution. Um, so it should be interesting to see if any research comes out about that or anyone's actually doing some mm. studies. So I'm gonna look into that. Um, you know, because I think they are underappreciated. And now we know that there have been five species of megapodes that have become extinct. Um, 
the fact that our current megapodes are doing so well is probably something that we should celebrate. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. Years ago, uh, I don't know if you remember when you were young, peanut allergies weren't really a thing. No, so I didn't. I didn't know anyone with a peanut allergy. No, no, peanut butter sandwiches was pretty much what I took to school every day. Yeah, yeah. Now because well, that was all I could make. But. Well, now at some schools you would get in trouble for that. You know, there you wouldn't is, be allowed. Uh, yeah, there there is no like calls to ban. Yeah, you, know, you have no peanut zones um, mm-hmm. because peanut allergies are very common. They are um, up to one in ten infants uh, and two in ten school age children having a proven or well, food allergy of some sort. What? Um, yes. Um, and this is why you know EpiPens now are part of a, a kind of become part of a first aid kit because oh it's, uh, it's a it's deadly can be potentially it's deadly. It's so common that you have to have an EpiPen in the first aid kit. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Um, now, yeah, so peanuts are are quite um, one of the common allergies. Um, the most common um, food allergies are to proteins found in various foods. So you have things like cow's milk, soy, egg, wheat, peanut, tree nuts. Sesame seeds, fish, seafood. Um, where, but egg and peanut allergies are the most common um, food allergies in infants so, and toddlers. So, so no egg sandwiches, no peanut butter sandwiches, and no fish paste sandwiches. Is that what you're saying? Well, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But um, paste. some of these look. Some of these allergies um, people do grow out of. Children often grow out of um, egg allergies, but not peanuts. They're normally a lifetime affliction. Right. Um, and what's been causing the rise isn't really known. Um, there are obviously some theories. Um, a popular one is the uh, the hygiene hypothesis. It's called so they can wear too clean now, and that the the lack of you know bacterial threats to our immune systems means their immune systems get hyper alert to things. Because basically, what analogy is is yeah creating antibodies and immune response to something that isn't actually a threat. I just um, want to know why peanuts. Like of all the things, what is it about peanuts? I can't. I well, I can't actually tell you that. I can't actually possibly, tell you that. Possibly that I don't know. Maybe it's something to do with them being a legume because there's a lot of allergies in Europe to things like fava beans. Is a really common allergy in European men, but not in other people of the world. So it could. It's just like it's just the protein. It's a specific protein that people are allergic to. Yeah. But yeah, why it's rising though is yeah, people are saying it's because it's got something to do with our immune systems. Um, one thing supporting that is that uh, apparently people with pets are less likely to have allergies. So you know, could, you know pets are dirty. Right mm-hmm. here. Um, there's My also cat cleans herself all the time. With what though? Her own tongue <laughs> with peanut butter. <laughs> I mean, that's not the most hygienic. You try licking yourself with your own tongue, see how clean you get, Claire. Um, <laughs> Look, there's other things like um, there is a connection possibly between well, eczema, which is kind of an allergy itself, but you know the idea that you know sensitivity through skin is some way you could get get related to it. And another possibly explanation for the rise is because of the previous guidelines around allergies, which basically um, now we know were misguided. So when the when the rise in allergies was first observed, the first advice I gave parents was to avoid peanuts Um, and this wasn't only for infants like babies and toddlers but also breastfeeding mothers and even while they're pregnant now i've seen various various um sort of opinions on why this was the case it seems to me like it might have been a bit of a precautionary approach because like with with a you know when you've got a severe allergy the only way to like peanut allergies there is no cure for it currently the only thing to do is to avoid it completely so you know precautionary thing the 
this is going to be an, an allergen, then don't go near it. Might have been, you know, sensible advice, it sounded like. But there had actually been some early trials on avoiding allergens during pregnancy and while breastfeeding. Um, but uh, there's now kind of people looking again at those studies and showing and thinking that, you know, they weren't actually correcting for various factors like people with a family history of allergies are more likely to adhere to food restrictions and that can kind of bias the results. So those studies weren't as reliable as they first seemed. So there have since been more um, robust studies. And one of the most influential was one called the Learning Early About Peanut or LEAP study that was published in 2015 in the New England Journal of Medicine. You got, All medical studies these days have to have a, a dodgy acronym, I'm afraid, Claire. That's, that's the way it works. The best one I saw, I can't remember what it was, but um, they came up with the acronym TRAGEDY, but spelled T-R-A-G-I-D-Y, so they didn't even spell it right. There's a really convoluted way of getting the name, the TRAGEDY study. Anyway, this is the LEAP study, this one we're talking about. Now, this one came back because the investigators had observed that um, peanut allergies among Jewish children in the United Kingdom was about 10 times as high as that among Israeli children who had a similar ancestry, similar sort of... Yeah, heritage. Um, and they noted that, you know, in the United Kingdom, peanuts were generally avoided in the mm. first year of life as per the guidelines. But in Israel, they tend to be introduced at around seven months. Um, there's a very popular snack product called Bamba, apparently, which was, is a big Sounds kind of source delicious. of protein. Yeah, peanutty snack mm. product. Mm. So they found that basically giving children this particular snack product uh, early greatly introduced the incidence of peanut allergies. Uh, and this study, study federal meta-analysis published that was in September 2016, which showed that giving infants peanuts reduced the number with allergies from about, say, 25 per 1,000 to 7 per 1,000. Wow. So they gave them peanuts gave rather than them avoiding peanuts. them, and what? there was lower incidence. Yeah, right. Was this at a certain time in their lives or um, while their mothers were pregnant? or? Um, this, is, this is actually, well... This was generally these studies were showing giving them yeah in the first sort of four to eleven months okay, I think generally okay. um, the actual age best to give is not known um, yeah and this is one of the things that's for further study apparently but yeah it means that there has been a complete reversal of the advice because the used to be the advice was yeah avoid the allergies you know for the children also while um, you know mothers are pregnant and while they're breastfeeding now the guidelines from the Australian Society of Clinical Immunology and Allergy say that um, yeah don't exclude any of those kind of foods during pregnancy or breastfeeding and all infants should be given allergenic solid foods including peanut butter cooked egg dairy and wheat products in the first year of life and this includes infants at high risk of allergy because this is what has been shown to work um, i should point out that same meta-analysis also found that there was a benefit for eggs as well as similar products with eggs the numbers weren't as spectacular they reduced them from about 54 per 1000 to 30 per 1000 but it's still pretty good it's still pretty good reduction yeah, pretty hefty reduction yeah. so yeah look apart from the simple fact that it is good to prevent allergies and save lives i think we can all agree on that um it's also good news because i think there is enough pressure on parents, uh, especially pregnant mothers, to follow special diets. And the fact that now, you know, they can just encourage to eat whatever they want is probably yeah, it, a good thing. It has been it has been the rule lately. It's like, oh, you're pregnant, you have no fun until the baby's born. And look, on to be honest, this is one of the other theories that I've seen about um, why the allergy rise in allergies is to do with um, say changes in the microbiome and that sort of thing, which is also again one of the hot topics these days. But saying that food restrictions in pregnancy can lead to, you know, changes in the microbiome which then could 
um, lead to alterations in, in allergies and that sort of stuff. Um, that's, you know, an area of research that is totally not saying that is necessarily the case, but that is one of the things, theories people are looking at. Mm. But anyway, yeah, it is good now that you can eat the peanuts. Of course, not if you are allergic to it, this won't cure you. Um, but at least for um, the next generation, there is some hope that we can curtail the rise in allergies. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook uh, and if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost, lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.